Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to monday.com. The Michael Reed Show podcast. Tune in weekdays from 9 on LMFM. To contact us, email now. Michael at LMFM.ie. Wednesday morning, the 24th of May. Good morning with much debate and discussion from now till 11am. This is Michael Reid on LMFM. Yesterday, Sinn Féin's health spokesperson told the doll about a 78-year-old woman who suffers from cardiac issues and was brought to University Hospital in Waterford. David Cullinan had heard the woman's daughter talking about the experience on his local radio station WLRFM. She said, and I quote... Mam went through triage very quickly, but then we sat and sat. Mam sent me home at 11 o'clock as I had to go home and do the jobs at home. So she told me that she would ring me when she was ready. At two o'clock in the morning, she rang me and she said, they told me I'm staying in. I asked her if she had a bed as of yet, to which she responded no, though she was hopeful that it wouldn't be long before that came about. I said I would give her a ring in the morning and I went to bed. I got up at 6am and I was working at 8am, so I said I would go down first with a bag for ma'am. When I got in the door at 7am, I looked through and there she was, still sitting in the same chair. A 78-year-old woman who was later diagnosed with heart failure left for over 24 hours, not on a trolley, but on a chair in a hospital. Now, when that woman was eventually seen, she was in heart failure. David Cullinan was speaking in a private member's motion he t- tabled hoping to end average waiting times of 11 and a half hours in emergency departments, average trolley figures of 550 people a day, hospital waiting lists of 888,000 and how 24,000 of those appointments were cancelled last month. The agreed cross-party objective is to have nobody waiting longer than the Sláinte Care targets of 10 weeks for outpatient departments and 12 weeks for inpatient daycare gastrointestinal scope. In 2022, the numbers waiting over the Sláinte Care targets fell by 11% or 56,000 people. And there was a 24% reduction since the pandemic peak. And that there, Hildegard Nocton, the Minister, was deputising for Stephen Donnelly. Let's speak uh, to David Cullinan, Sinn Féin's uh, spokesperson on health now. Uh, a very good morning to you, David Cullinan, and thank you indeed uh, for joining us. It is an imperfect system. It probably will always be an imperfect system. But as we heard there a moment ago from the Minister, the government is making some prog- progress. Do you agree with that? 
Well, first of all, I, I don't agree with the premise that, well, obviously it's imperfect at the moment, uh, but I think that's a suggestion that things will never be right in the healthcare system. So I think we get to a dangerous point where we accept as normal the level of overcrowding that we have in our hospitals. And we're at another stage in May of this year where the numbers of people on trolleys have hit somewhere between 500 and 600 patients a day. Now, if that was happening four or five years ago, uh, there would be a national outcry. The numbers were far lower than that. So we've got to a point where it's almost been accepted now as normal that we have that volume of patients waiting for as long as they are. We had over 17,000 patients in the first quarter of this year that waited longer than 24 hours in an emergency department for access to a bed. And that story that I shared yesterday was a 78-year-old woman who was sitting on a chair for 24 hours in the hospital in Waterford. But we know of examples in Cork and Galway and Dublin yesterday that were given by other Oireachtas members across all parties uh, that this is a regular occurrence. So unfortunately, it is the reality at the moment, uh, but it doesn't have to be as bad as it is and things can be done to improve it. When the Minister was talking about a reduction in the length of time some patients were waiting, that is correct. There was some progress made last year. Unfortunately, that progress was undone in the first quarter of this year. And the numbers of people on outpatient and inpatient waiting lists actually increased by 20,000. So we've, we've gone backwards in the last couple of months. And that's because we no longer have what we call a winter trolley crisis. It's now a crisis all year round. Mm-hmm. And you might remember last summer was one of the worst summers on record for hospital trolleys. Uh, that went into the autumn. We had a really desperate situation in January where it reached almost a 1,000 patients on trolleys. And every day and every week since, it's been consistent in, in relation to five, 600, in some cases, 700 people on trolleys. But all of the data, Michael, is going in the wrong direction. We had 85,000 procedures and appointments that were cancelled in the first quarter of this year. How how were so many appointments cancelled? I I was really taken aback by that. What did you say? There are 85,000 in the first quarter, 24,000 of them in April? 85,000 in the first quarter, yeah, and 24,000 in April. The reason for that is, and I've been saying this to the Minister for Health, that we're simply shifting the crisis from one part of the health service to the other. So when we get to full occupancy and we get to a crisis point in emergency departments, which happens now too frequently, in fact, every day in some hospitals, uh, the first reaction by hospital management, because they they have to try and contain the situation, is to cancel procedures so that they can free up some of those inpatient Mm. beds. And that would have been Uh, par for the course during the emergency, during COVID. uh, But uh, you don't believe that COVID has anything to do with these cancellations? No, absolutely not. It's, it's nothing to do with COVID at the moment. And if you talk to any hospital manager, in fact, it's, it's accepted by the head of the HSE that these cancellations in the main are because hospitals, as a first reaction, will cancel planned procedures and appointments to free up capacity to deal with the crisis in emergency departments. Uh, but the average wait time in emergency departments across all hospitals this year was just under 12 hours. Uh, that's an average. We know that in some hospitals, the average was well over 24 hours. So the length of time people are waiting in emergency departments has gone in the wrong direction. The numbers of people on trolleys speaks for itself. We had, uh, again, uh, thousands of people who left emergency departments. I think in the first quarter of this year, it was 24,000 people left emergency departments without being seen. So we're seeing people leave early. We have problems with delayed discharges. We had 50,000 bed days lost. Uh, and then we had all of those cancellations. And behind all of those figures are real people with real experiences 
like that 78-year-old woman. Mm. And uh, Catherine Connolly uh, talked about uh, a woman who was over 80 who had a similar experience in the hospital in Galway. So we, we had lots of stories that were shared of elderly people, but also children, because the, wait, the average wait time for children in emergency departments was even higher than the, the average for adults. It was over 13 hours. And we know many of those were also waiting over 24 hours, very often sitting on a chair with their parents waiting to be seen, many of them in pain. And I don't accept the premise, Michael, that that's going to be the case forever and a day, and that it's not beyond us. With all the money we're spending in healthcare, with nearly 23 billion, mm. that we can't get better bang for buck, and that we can't ensure that local hospitals are performing better than they are. Because if you look at some hospitals that are performing better, I cannot understand for the life of me how, for example, we haven't had people on hospital trolleys in Waterford for nearly two years. Yeah. And the patient experience time is better. But yet in other hospitals, it's far worse. I know in, in, in Drogheda, it actually has seen an improvement in recent years. And that was down to some very positive changes that they made. And but still in all, we heard some pretty uh, frightening stories uh, about uh, patients uh, needing hospital care locally from Rory or Muraku, which we may hear later in the programme this morning for that matter. But when it comes to that 78-year-old woman in Waterford, um, is that the way the system should be operating or well, did something go wrong there despite uh, the overcrowding, despite the pressures and so on? If she was in heart failure and left sitting on a chair for 24 hours, was that a mistake? I mean, you did say she had been triaged. Well, I suppose the triage is it doesn't always determine the level of illness. So unless you have a diagnostic scan and unless you've been seen fully by a doctor, it's obviously impossible for uh, somebody at first glance to determine the level of illness, particularly a cardiac issue, because you have to get hooked up to the machines and, and obviously there's a, a diagnosis that has to be done. So it's impossible to be able to determine a level of illness that someone has simply by a first inspection. So triage is not a perfect system for determining the level of illness. What it does do is it can give doctors who are there a sense of who the most urgent cases are but all of the international evidence shows that if the longer people wait in emergency departments for care, uh, the more dangerous it is. In fact, it can lead to increased mortality. Uh, and we're way in excess of any of the uh, international averages and European averages in terms of wait times in emergency departments. And studies have uh, shown in the UK and elsewhere that unfortunately people die um, if they're waiting in excess of 24 hours in emergency departments. So it is a really critical situation. We've heard far too many horror stories of, of patients waiting too long, but also terrible experiences of people dying. There was one story shared in RTE last year of, of a lady who lost her husband. Uh, he, he died on a trolley in a hospital. He was five days on a hospital trolley, five days, eventually died. Um, but he died with the indignity of being in a hospital trolley and not in a bed. And for me, that's a very poor reflection of the state of the health services. And undoubtedly, some hospitals do need more capacity. There's no doubt about that. We also need to fix problems in primary and community care because the absence of those alternative care pathways of out of our GP or making greater use of pharmacies all drives more people to emergency departments. But I also agree, Michael, I want to make this point as well because I think it's important in terms of how we solve the problem. Bernard Gloucester, the new head of the HSE, made a very important point, and he's before the Iraqis Health Committee, in fact, at half nine this morning, so I'll be in, in, in that session very shortly. But he made a point at the INMO conference that we have to move to having a seven-day week service in the healthcare because we're spending almost 23 billion 
a huge amount of that budget goes into acute hospitals. But yet two days a week, it runs a, a, a skeleton service. So that's not getting bang for buck for the staff complement that we have and the money that we're putting in. Mm. And I know that raises industrial relations issues, and I'm conscious of that. But without a doubt, we have to be getting more on Saturdays and Sundays because what happens, and particularly in a bank holiday, uh, where again, a service is disrupted on a Monday, it all builds up, huge pressures are there, mm. and patient safety is compromised. And, and I think he's right to shine a spotlight on that and, and try and improve that situation. And that's mainly for discharges, isn't it? Because if you're not discharged from hospital on a Friday evening, it'll be Monday morning at the earliest before you are discharged, which means that you're in a bed on Saturday, even though it's possible that you could have been discharged on the Saturday. Yeah, so it's 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 international best practice that if you have more senior doctors and decision makers on the floor of hospitals more more often, particularly at weekends, it can speed up discharges. That's one part of it. But also, if you have a slim down staff complement on a Saturday and Sunday, uh, people get sick any day of the week. Uh, emergencies happen on a Saturday or Sunday uh, as much as they do on a Wednesday or a Thursday. In fact, at weekends, uh, we we could see more because people are, are out and people are are not working and more accidents can happen. So it's, it's, it's not a healthy situation that we're not getting more from the health services in terms of weekends. So I'm saying that that is something that obviously needs to be carefully worked through and I'm conscious of industrial relation issues in relation to that. But I think the head of the HSE is right to say, what more can we do? Uh, we obviously need to put more capacity into hospitals. We need to make sure that we have more out of hours GP cover and making greater use of pharmacists. We need more step-down and recovery beds. All of that are all ingredients to to solve the problem. But we also need to make sure that where there is best practice in hospitals, that we Mm. then mandate that across all hospitals. And that's where the leadership has to come in. And I would hope that Bernard Gloucester can take a fresh approach. If I was in his shoes, I would be bringing together all hospital managers and those on a regular basis, if not a weekly basis, and where hospitals are doing things better, that should be happening in every hospital. Like There's no excuse as to why, if we have good practice in a hospital in one part of the country, why that's not happening elsewhere. So I'm conscious that there is a need for additional capacity in the system, but mm-hmm. there is also a need to improve efficiency and to get better bang for buck for the money that we are spending in healthcare. And before we, we ask citizens to spend more, we need to make sure that we're getting value for the money that we are spending. And that's why I think reform of how we're operating the health services is as important as any additional capacity which needs to be put in. OK. Uh, and uh, I take it uh, when you speak to Bernard Loster uh, in uh, the next few minutes, uh, you'll be hoping to hear those plans uh, and over different time frames, uh, depending on uh, the plans, because he's very new to the job. He's just getting his feet under the table. Uh, but there are some things that are working well, as you say, now, and they can be done in, in the short term. Other things will take longer uh, and there'll be medium term plans, I'm sure, as well as long term plans. If uh, it is an imperfect system and doesn't need to be, uh, which I think uh, you were saying at the outset, uh, how long uh, should it be in the long term, if you like, uh, before the system can be perfected? Well, I think you have to separate what can be done immediately from what is going to take some time in the medium to long term. So immediately, I would be making sure that we're uh, getting those hospital managers together on a regular basis that the head of the HSE takes authority and takes command of that, examines what is best practice, because some of that work has been done 
And I know that in a number of hospitals that have performed exceptionally well, even through difficult time periods in their emergency departments, uh, the HSE operations officer, chief operations officer and the clinical officer visited those hospitals and have taken those learnings. So the first thing that needs to be done is mandate that across all hospitals. Uh, if we need to be leveraging capacity in the private sector in the very short term, that should be done because I take a very simple view. We have to look at the totality of health infrastructure when there's an emergency and use it to best effect. So in the, in the immediate short term, that should be done. And all those other uh, areas of reform, like moving more to a seven-day-a-week health service, particularly in acute hospitals, uh, making sure that uh, we're putting the investments into primary and community care to take pressure away from acute hospitals obviously requires investments. And the key to all of that uh, is workforce planning because we, we also need to ratchet up um, uh, training places. And that's why I was disappointed in the all the, the uh, alternative motion or the counter motion put forward by the minister last night. The last line, the last paragraph of, of his counter motion, he says that he will engage with the Minister for Higher Education on examining additional training places. Uh, and that's obviously not enough and, and a very weak response when we, uh, the political system has been talking about recruitment and retention problems in the health service for years and an inability to recruit staff. So that's what I'd be putting to the head of the HSE. Uh, can we bring greater urgency to some of those measures? But what we can do right now needs to be done and needs to be done uh, urgently. Okay, but the minister did say to you um, uh, yesterday evening that 870 whole time uh, equivalents have uh, been recruited under phase one uh, of uh, the framework uh, that they have in place for this. That's 92% of uh, the vacancies filled. Well, last year uh, the HSE funded uh, 10,000 additional posts which were needed just to stand still uh, and provide existing levels of service. Only 5,500 staff could be recruited and the deficit was because they simply were not able to find staff. If you look at children's disabilities, for example, one third of those teams have been vacant and vacant for some time. So across hospitals, across community care and primary care, and we can see it with GP capacity as well, we simply don't have the level of staff. In fact, we're facing a real crisis now in GP and primary care in, in some areas, particularly in rural areas. So it's been known for a long time that we need to increase the pool of graduates coming through. Of course, there is still a level of recruitment, but the level of recruitment is falling well short of what's required. And if we get to a point where we actually are funding 10,000 posts, and this isn't about funding, the money is there to recruit staff, but we can't recruit them because we're simply not training enough uh, or they're leaving uh, to go abroad because of the capacity issues and, and the level of frustration which then exists and the pressures which exist on the front line in healthcare. Uh, that's a matter that needs to be fixed. And the political system, but also, of course, the head of the HSE uh, and those who are in management positions have a responsibility to fix those problems. So I, I don't accept that anything near enough has been done to deal with the recruitment and the retention issues which exist in the healthcare system. OK, we leave it there for now. Thank you indeed uh, okay. for... Thanks for joining us on the programme today. Uh, that's uh, David Cullinan, who's Sinn Féin's spokesperson on health. John Navin saying, isn't it a laugh that the Minister for Health makes excuses for the HSE? Is he not the boss? In Ireland, you get a clap on the back, John says, if you do a bad job. But there is no need for a minister if he's not 
the boss. Uh, the HSE just seem to do what they want and the HSE tells the Minister what to do. Uh, it's a laughable situation, uh, or it would be, John says, if it wasn't so serious. Uh, we had a text then this morning uh, from Helen McArdle who wants to know why is uh, the Children's Hospital so long behind? Thank you indeed, Helen. Uh, a good effort at opening a can of worms if ever there was. Now, if you'd like to make comments like Helen or John, we'd love to hear from you. Our telephone number is 041 983 You can text us or WhatsApp 086 1800 658. Email michael at lmfm.ie. Michael Reed on LMFM. The cost of uh, the weekly shop is a challenge uh, for a a lot of people and not surprisingly so given that food inflation has been running at over 13% uh, based on CSO figures Uh, but uh, there's some things that you can't do with that because I think a lot of people are doing without things that they would have bought before or uh, they're trying to buy own branded products Uh, but if you look at uh, the likes of milk, butter and eggs they've increased by 24%, 18.9% and 18.3%. So that's according to Safe Food, which has been looking at how difficult it is for a lot of people to meet the cost of what they describe as a minimal acceptable healthy food basket. Let's speak uh, to Dr Aileen McLoin, who's uh, Director of Nutrition at Safe Food. And a very good morning to you, Aileen, and thank you indeed uh, for joining us on the programme. Uh, what, what do you define as a healthy food basket? So a minimal acceptable food basket, as you said, is a food basket that meets people's nutritional needs, but is also acceptable from a social and cultural perspective. So that would mean that it allows for, I suppose, aspects of of dignity, if you want, like being able to afford a packet of biscuits in case somebody comes around for a cup of tea or being able to afford a birthday cake for a child or a few extras at Christmas. So we're not talking about anything elaborate or mm. extravagant here it's not a, it's not a basket of extras. it's not a basket of celery and broccoli although they might no. be in there and a, a little bit of everything I, I think is uh, yeah. what a lot of people would uh, consider to be a healthy diet so you're looking at the healthy food basket uh, and what that costs uh, for people uh, what is acceptable at a minimum uh, but the prices have increased and you've looked at uh, the costs uh, for different cohorts of people We have. So we've looked at six different household groups. Um, These would be households that are either on uh, state welfare or on minimum wage. So these range from uh, a family with a teenager and a primary school child in them to, uh, let's say, a pension couple uh, or an individual living alone. So it's really to get an idea of the, the breadth of different households and the types of challenges. And the families that were most under pressure were those with a teenager in the house. So those families spent up to a third of their take-home income on food. And that's because having a teenager in the house is really the equivalent from a food perspective of having another adult in the house. Mm. So I think, I think that's just worth remembering that there are particular groups that are under particular pressure. Yeah, maybe an adult and a half because uh, young, young people can <laughs> eat uh, out of house and home uh, on occasion and it's part of growing up and uh, the body growing. Uh, but a, a third of your income going out on groceries uh, is not really what you would expect what what it should be what should it be at a, at a maximum well again just looking at cso figures um when you look at the average uh, spend of a, of a, let's say a higher income family it will be in and around the 11% so that means that you know your your food budget is highly affordable mm. if, at that level and um, if you're coming up to about a third 
and, and this is the, the equivalent for a family in a rural area, that's 162 euros in an urban area, 150 euros. That means that you've got about 320 euros else in the week to pay for everything else. Yeah. Heat, light, transport, phones, everything that's going on in the house. And that just gives an idea of how tight things really are. Yeah, well, you shouldn't pay more than a third of your income on uh, your accommodation, should you? So, I mean, if you're paying it on your groceries, uh, it's well beyond your means. Yeah, it, it, and, it, and it is that portion of the budget that people... I suppose see as flexible. So the kind of outcomes there are that people will buy cheaper, less healthy food just to keep people full within the house, um, or you know, or something unexpected happens, like you know, a child's pair of runners falls apart or something yeah. like that, and yeah. you have to spend the money elsewhere. Exactly. So the food yeah. budget is the thing that gets squeezed, and it means people aren't having a nutritionally adequate diet in those circumstances. Mm, or if the washing machine breaks or a pipe exactly. is burst, you have to pay out uh, and you have to find the money somewhere. Uh, but why is it more expensive to do your shopping uh, in the country than it is in the town? Yeah, that's an interesting finding. And I suppose that the the budgets are put together in a realistic way. So typically, if you're in an urban area, you can get to a supermarket fairly easily. Um, if you live in a rural area, you possibly will go to the supermarket once a week and you'll do your top-up shops in the local stores. So people are more reliant on local convenience shops, basically, and there the prices are higher. And that is why it's uh, reflected in a higher cost for rural families. And apart from that, they'll have higher transport costs. So, you know... Um, people really are under a bit more pressure in rural areas. Mm, and there's no avoiding these increases uh, in some cases. I mean, uh, we need the staples, uh, as you say. Uh, but otherwise, are we making good choices when it comes to healthy options? I think it's it's hard to make good choices. You know, if you, if you think about the supermarket environment, there tends to be a lot more special offers on the unhealthy foods than the healthy foods. So I suppose I would urge retailers to place more emphasis on uh, special offers for healthy foods to make it that bit easier for people who are on the tighter budgets, who are struggling to to buy those health, to have those healthy foods within their reach, um, you know, and, and just to encourage everybody to, you know, to, to buy those foods that are, are, are much more important from a nutritional perspective. Mm. Such as? I mean... Then again, the basics that you mentioned earlier, mm, fruit, yeah. fresh fruit and vegetables, yeah. uh, uh, brown bread where, where you can get it, um, uh, the leanest protein that you can afford, meat, fish and, and vegetarian alternatives. Mm. So it's really those kind of core foods, um, you know, dairy foods, that, you know, that pe- you know those, those basic foods that everybody needs and everybody knows are part of a healthy diet. Okay. Uh, I'm not sure that people will be shocked by your findings, uh, but they are... Uh, interesting nonetheless uh, and you uh, carry out these surveys every two years and you're seeing significant increases this year. Yeah so we've been carrying out this survey every two years since 2014 and this is the first year that we've seen an increase in food prices. Now bearing in mind this data was collected last year so if it was collected this year the picture would be even worse. We've seen a, a steady increase in prices for the last 18 months so um, you know and we'll collect it again next year in 2024 and um at the moment, the, the, you know, the direction of travel is not positive. So I suppose th- there's lots of things we can do um, at Safe Food. We run community food initiatives across the island, and these are designed to help people build their capacity around budgeting, uh, planning food, you know, dealing with food waste. So that's part of it. I think we need to keep the spotlight on the adequacy of uh, welfare payments, on 
uh, minimum wage and to the food environment, as I mentioned earlier, is really important. Okay. Apart from that, there's probably more going on nationally in relation to addressing food poverty than ever before. The Department of Social Protection mapped all the food poverty initiatives um, last year. That's really, really helpful. And they range, obviously I won't mention them all, but they range from you know food standards for the preschool sector to the free school lunch schemes for deaf schools to Meals on Wheels. And there's probably more going on than ever before, but at the same time, we're in an economic situation that is yeah. more uh, dire than maybe a, a long, long, that has been for a long, long time. So we just need to keep the emphasis on the kind of supports that are being developed throughout the country. It, it couldn't be more important. Okay. Thank you, Aileen, for joining us uh, this morning. That's uh, Dr. Aileen McLoyne, Director of Nutrition with Safe Food. Michael Reed on LMFM. Now, let's stay with the increase in the cost of living. Uh, is the government acting? Uh, it's acting in five ways, Deputy. Uh, we've had energy credits, uh, 600 euros for every household uh, to help them with their electricity bills. We've reduced VAT to 9%, at the lowest VAT rate ever for electricity and gas. Uh, we've taken a special dividend off ESB, about 300 million euros in a dividend taken from that state company, which we can use to help homes and businesses uh, over the period ahead. Uh, just today at Cabinet, um, we approved the extension of the TBEST scheme for small businesses until the end of July, helping them with their energy costs, and Minister Coveney's approval to help uh, businesses that use kerosene, particularly those in rural areas that haven't got anything yet uh, because they, they use kerosene rather than, uh, rather than gas, uh, and that's happening. And the other thing that's happening, Deputy, is a windfall tax being imposed on the profits uh, of the energy companies. That legislation is being developed at the moment uh, and will apply from September. Uh, and also, when it comes to difficult cases and hardship cases, and they do happen, uh, and you uh, mentioned one earlier on, um, exceptional need, needs payments are available from the Department of Social Protection. As the Taoiseach Leo Vradker speaking in the Dáil yesterday. Put like that, well, the government is doing a lot. Uh, undoubtedly, though, not enough, given that St Vincent de Paul has seen a 50% increase in the amount of people asking for help with their energy bills in the first quarter of this year. And that's on top of a 40% increase in requests for assistance last year. Izzy Petrie, Research and Policy Officer with the Society of St Vincent de Paul, is on the line with us. Good morning, Thank you indeed uh, for joining us. Uh, you were making these points to the Oireachtas Committee on the Environment yesterday and how people are making very tough decisions uh, about heating or lighting their homes and the other bills uh, that they face. And you say that uh, the summer is over, but we're still facing an energy price and energy poverty crisis. Hi, Michael, um, and thanks for having me on. Yeah, that's exactly it. So, you know, as you just said there, we're still kind of really concerned the winter might have come to an end, but we're supporting people, you know, we're supporting more people in the first quarter of this year who are really struggling um, to pay for their energy bills to meet their costs. They've had a, a really tough time over winter and they're now faced with trying to pay back those really big bills or if they're on a prepay meter to keep the meter topped up. So SVP members are kind of still seeing that day to day that people are really having a difficult time. And that's hard, uh, hardship uh, for a lot of people. But it's not just that poverty that you're concerned about because you say it's taking an emotional, mental and physical health toll on people. Yeah, definitely. And this is something that SVP members talk about a lot and they see a lot is the sort of um, the 
the impact on people's mental health and I suppose the, the distress that people are faced with when they're faced with this situation where they have costs they have to meet really, you know, essential costs, whether it's the rent, it's the electricity bill, it's the shopping bill. And they're, you know, they're faced with the reality that they can't meet all of those costs. And I suppose our, our priority is about making sure that people know that they have somewhere to go, that they seek support that is out there and sort of, you know, there are ways through this because mm. people, you know, are very distressed. It probably shouldn't be too surprising that you've seen such an increase uh, in requests uh, for help, given how we heard that a quarter of gas customers are in arrears. Yeah, and, and, you know, gas and the heating costs, you know, have put a huge pressure on people over the winter, obviously, and now people are kind of faced with with paying back those bills if they have built up the arrears. You know, there's also areas in electricity as well um, you know and then there's pressure pressure on all sides at the moment really so mm. you know obviously also uh, people who use oil will have seen high costs as well and then now you know we're hearing a lot about food costs and you know the rising pressure on people's food and shopping bills as well and, and you'd like the government to help people pay their arrears yeah really we need to see kind of a comprehensive solutions from 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 government, from the regulator, from suppliers to make sure that, you know, we don't see people who might be on the lowest incomes, who might be struggling already kind of faced with the biggest bills and the biggest arrears. And really a priority for government really is to kind of continue tackling this Mm. over, you know, what might feel like, you know, we're coming into summer, but we still need to be tackling this ahead of next winter and a, a real priority for us the government is making sure that people have enough income in the first place to meet all of their costs whether that's energy costs whether that's food costs all of their costs so we'll, we're going to be definitely calling for kind of increases in core social welfare rates to keep up with the cost of living and things like that mm, because prices uh, aren't coming down anytime soon it seems a lot of people flabbergasted as wholesale electricity prices coming down by 42 and a half percent but domestic bills increasing by 51 percent uh, there's a lot of problems as a result of uh, the cost of energy uh, that we've already experienced uh, we're going to possibly see the same experience going into the next winter but you're saying we should learn from the last one yeah and you know hopefully we will have slightly lower prices but we need to you know plan to make sure that you know people aren't facing the same situation that they faced this winter with kind of bills really big bills building up and you know particularly prepay customers we would be really concerned about prepay customers who struggle to keep that meter topped up throughout the week and can even go you know periods without having any energy at home so we just Mm. need to improve those systems that we have to support people to make sure people get connected in with support really quickly when they need it and there's also kind of longer term solutions for Mm. people as well and they may not be disconnected but they might not be turning on the heat yeah, yeah, definitely. And that's sort of what we see as well. People are so worried about whether that's a bill coming in or, you know, knowing they have to sort of ration their energy use in some way, that people will be in really difficult situations where they'll be sitting, you know, without the lights on. They might not use the heating at all. You know, people will kind of ration their use of hot water mm. because, you know, they're so worried about, you know, the cost that's going to come to them if they do use this. And that's, you know, as we said earlier, really not good for people's health. Okay, and uh, obviously you respond to those requests for help uh, and uh, there is help at hand uh, through St Vincent de Paul and I'm sure uh, people will continue to be very good donating to Vincent de Paul for that matter. Izzy, we have to leave it there for the moment though and thank you indeed for joining us on the programme today. Izzy Petrie, Research and Policy Officer with the Society of St Vincent de Paul. Michael Reed on LMFM. Uh, thanks to John for the call to the programme uh, this morning. John was on the phone to us there saying that there's a fine building 
being lying idle in Betty Sound, the former Betty Sound Court Hotel. Why isn't it being put to use to house immigrants when we're in the middle of a housing crisis? Government seems to be looking at the idea of floatels. Uh, which could take months to get up and running when there's plenty uh, of premises like the former hotel in Bettystown that are lying idle around the country and are already suitable for that purpose. Thanks, John, uh, for that suggestion. I I don't know is uh, the answer to that, but I'll tell you what I'll do. I'll ask Fergus O'Dowd uh, about uh, the Bettystown Court Hotel and uh, if there is any possibility of it uh, being used uh, for refugees or asylum seekers. Uh, He'll be speaking to us in the next few minutes. Greg has been in touch uh, and Greg says I said it before and I'll say it again the country is heading for a major major recession as always the rich get richer and to hell with the poor the people of uh, this country need to start standing up for themselves we need to be more like the French and start taking to the streets thank you Greg for that not sure that we're heading for a recession Uh, the country is on the up it would seem uh, we've money to burn at this stage uh, and we're trying to work out what to do with 65 billion euro over the next few years. That's after we pay for everything that we normally pay for. Uh, Paddy is in Terman Fekin and he says, Michael, please forgive my cynicism, but when it comes to these waiting lists in hospitals and so on, uh, the dissolving dentist service, as he puts it, uh, and don't get me started on old folks' homes during lockdown, uh, he wonders if there's a master plan, coal by proxy. Um, thanks, Paddy. Uh, I, I think that's uh, a little bit more than cynical. <laughs> I'm not sure where you got that idea, but no, I don't think that there's any truth in that. But uh, right, there's a lot of problems uh, that you highlight. There is no uh, doubt about that. And we heard about some of those problems uh, at the beginning of the programme when we were speaking to David Cullinan, Sinn Féin, uh, TD, spokesperson on health. He's a TD in Waterford and he told us about some of uh, the stories in his local hospital. Uh, that was uh, in a debate in the Dáil yesterday uh, on uh, waiting times in uh, the health service. Uh, let's hear uh, about some local issues. Uh, I mentioned uh, the contribution made uh, by Sinn Féin's Rory O'Murakou uh, a little bit earlier on and here's some of what he had to say. A 73-year-old woman who has been having problems with a suspected prolapse womb for around five years. Around three years ago, she had an appointment with a specialist at the Loud County Hospital, but heard nothing back and had her next appointment at the Loud on January 20th this year. She had blood taken and other tests, but had been advised that she is on the list for surgery at the Lourdes in Drogheda, which she tells me is supposed to happen in the next 12 months. However, She is in terrible pain, particularly when she passes water, and cannot walk properly at this stage. Following a query from my office, she received notification that she would be advised of an appointment in Q4 or the end of 2023. A 66-year-old woman in North Loud has been waiting a number of months to see an orthopaedic surgeon um, at the Lourdes Hospital following damage to her right shoulder, which includes bone damage and five tears. Her GP has made referrals into the Loud County Hospital and she has received an X-ray and following that, an MRI scan. She has been given painkillers and has been referred into the very good physiotherapy service at the Loud County Hospital. But the physio there is reluctant to continue to work on her because he is concerned about doing more harm than good. She is in a situation now 
where her activities of daily living are severely affected. She is not able to shower, do her hair, or dress herself anymore, and she is a significant, in a significant amount of pain. She is in urgent need of an appointment with an orthopaedic surgeon. Following a query from my office, she has been advised she will get an appointment date in August this year. A gentleman from Dundalk who is at the end of life, who has a stoma bag fitted, and who also has dementia. It is his wish and that of his families to come home. While he's been offered a care package in the community, it does not include anyone to change the stoma bag. With his daughter being told she might, uh, she might be able to learn it herself in order to get him home. The family is under pressure from the step-down facility where he is and from community care in CHO8 to take him home without the stoma care. They are not willing to do that, and I'd say that's rightly so. They are being told that there is no one who can do this, but look, we all know that there are HCAs in the private sector who are able to do it. We are still awaiting an answer from COH8. And also, I have made contact with Minister Butler today in relation to this particular issue. We really need to see action on it. We're dealing with people who just want the pain to stop. They want to be with their family, in some cases at the end of their lives. The system is broken. The people are broken, waiting for it to be fixed. Minister, this isn't good enough. We owe the people better. That's uh, Sinn Féin TD for Loud the Needs Made. Rory Murku, heartbreaking stories. Really, really heartbreaking stories. I think you'll uh, agree. Uh, it was a very long debate and a, a lot of uh, stories that would break your heart uh, were told in at the Dáil last night. Uh, stories uh, of uh, people being failed by our health service in every corner of uh, the country. But we'll hear from uh, another local TD now. Last year, 115,000 patients across the country left A&E before they were seen. It's an incredible figure. 115,000 people were sick enough to warrant going into A&E, but were forced to wait so long that after a while they felt that they were safer and better off at home. And the A&E in Our Lady's Hospital Navin was so busy last year that 1,230 patients left Navin A&E before they were seen. An incredible figure for a hospital that the government is actually looking to close the A&E of uh, at the moment. Now, statistics that were given to us in AIM2 also reveal that two people in the southwest region were left waiting for longer than 13 hours for an ambulance last year. One person in the western region was left waiting 22 hours for an ambulance last year. That's according to the figures from a PQ that we received. The Minister- this Mother's Day, celebrate the extraordinary women in your life with a heartfelt gift from Blue Nile. Whether it's for your mom, a mother figure, or yourself as a mom, find that perfect piece to express your love and appreciation. Explore Blue Nile's exquisite pearls and mesmerizing gemstones that she's sure to love. Enjoy fast shipping options like guaranteed free shipping and returns. Make this Mother's Day unforgettable with a piece from Blue Nile. Right now, get up to 50% off at BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. 
That's plushcare.com slash weightloss. plushcare.com slash weightloss. The definition of an ambulance is a vehicle that's equipped to taking sick people or injured people to a hospital in an emergency. 22 hours is not any figure that you would associate with an emergency response. The average response time for ambulances has been increasing year on year since 2019. And so has the number of times of patients has been found dead by the time the ambulance reached them. So in 2019, 757 people were dead by the time the ambulance arrived. And in 2021, that figure stood at 927 people. That's a very upsetting experience for everybody involved. There is no doubt. Uh, Paterto being there, the Mead West TD also raised some local issues. Now that's a startling, devastating figure, Minister. It's a life and death indicator of the performance of the emergency services under your government at the moment. Last year, 103,000 ambulances, or 34% of all call-outs, saw the wait time increased to more than an hour for the handover of a patient at the hospital. So that means these were tied up because of the lack of beds in A&E, and as a result, their ability to get back on the road and help people who were in serious need was obviously messed up as a result as well. So we had scenes of total chaos in Our Lady of Lourdes Hospital in Drogheda just a few months ago, as 11 ambulances were stuck waiting for five hours for the lack of beds. He had the closest hospital. The government seeks to close the A&E in Navan. Now, those ambulances tied up a draw had meant that there was no ambulances available for Mead, Loud, Cavan and Monaghan for that night. None, because they're all stuck in a car park outside an A&E in Drogheda. That's Patrick Tobin uh, speaking in uh, the uh, debate on the health service. Uh, and we'll stay with Patrick Tobin because he, he raised a separate issue earlier in the day in the Dáil. Uh, Taoiseach, uh, the filmed attack uh, on the child in Navan over a week ago has shocked so many people throughout the country. The sustained nature of it as the child lay on the ground was brutal. And it's important that there's justice for this child uh, and his family. But it's not an isolated event, sadly. Peer violence outside schools uh, is growing in this country and child-on-child violence is also growing uh, in Ireland at the moment. I don't want to speak specifically about this case in the legal aspects of it because we want to see the law implemented properly. But in general terms, would you agree that there has to be a real cost to young perpetrators of violence uh, on young people? There has to be a real deterrent to protect children from violence. Ireland's youth diversion programme plays a valuable role in diverting children from the criminal system. But would you agree, Taoiseach, that when it comes to significant violence uh, by children on children, that the GLO system is not the required justice and is not enough of a deterrent? That's here what the Taoiseach had to say in response. Here is Leo Vratker. I I think he's right. Um, If uh, children are engaged in violence uh, and serious crime, um, there have to be consequences. But I really think that has to be done on an individualised basis. Uh, Nobody wants to see a child being criminalised or getting a criminal record or having to be put in detention, and that's why there are alternatives in place. But it does depend on the individual case, the gravity of the crime, the circumstances around it, and what's best for the children involved. All right. Taoiseach Leo Vratker responding to Aintu's Petter Tobin. 
Michael Reed on LMFM. Now, uh, we're going to speak, I hope we're going to speak, uh, with Fine Gael TD, Fergus O'Dowd, about the immigration situation and put John's point to him about why, why the Betty's Town Court Hotel is lying idle uh, when it could be used to house migrants. Uh, but we're having a, a bit of a problem with uh, the line. We're trying to rectify that. And the reason uh, we wanted to talk to Fergus O'Dowd on the programme today is because... Uh, there was a, a very long debate in uh, the Dáil yesterday about finding accommodation for people coming into this country and Fergus O'Dowd uh, pointed to, to the Irish going to America and how America had been a great country, as he put it, for Irish people. And now he said, we have to be a great country for people who have a right to live here and to work if uh, they meet the requirements because we have a shortage of workers uh, and uh, there's an opportunity in all of this for us. He, he said that when it comes to people who block roads in places like Inch or wear masks and prevent people from going to work in Santry or I gather worse than that, burning tents down in Mount Street, that it was completely unacceptable. And then he started talking about people counting refugees on buses. He said it was exceptionally ignorant because these people were trying to make the point that we were an easy target, an open door, when in fact we turn more immigrants away than most countries. Uh, the fourth highest, uh, apparently, uh, across Europe. Uh, it was uh, Poland, uh, then Hungary, then Croatia, uh, and then Ireland as uh, the fourth highest uh, country uh, for refusing I- immigrants uh, who uh, had come here. Uh, and obviously very uh, upset uh, at the idea of people counting immigrants on buses. Uh, we have managed uh, to get a, a, a strong line, a steady line with Fergus O'Dowd uh, and he's uh, there now. Good morning to you. Thank you indeed uh, for joining us. I was trying to relay parts of your speech to our, our listeners in the doll uh, yesterday uh, and uh, the way that you pointed to America and how the Irish were welcomed there. Uh, one thing I, I didn't mention from your speech was the difference uh, between the Irish people when they arrived in America and those who accepted them, and they did accept them, but there were many differences, as you highlighted in your speech. There were indeed, Michael, apologies about earlier on. I'm in Belfast today, but yeah, the Irish people that went to America, particularly in the 18th century, the vast majority were Catholics, while the American population at that time was predominantly Protestant, and also they didn't speak English, so uh, they, they they had language barriers and they had religious barriers, and obviously they were at the bottom of the pile in terms of society. But they, they worked their way up to be esteemed and very valuable members, including President Biden, who came here recently. So uh, immigration, you know, which we faced in for centuries, you know, it worked for us in countries like America, and I think you know the Irish people have have been very welcome to the Ukrainian refugees, first of all. Uh, and you know, the, the, you know, the, 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 you know, I think about I think about a third of them are actually mm. working our our economy now. And then the issues around international protection are the issues that raised you know people's concerns in Clare recently. Mm. 
Mm. But Michael, that was that's the exception rather than the rule to AD. And you made that point. I think people locally will be interested in how you praised uh, the way immigrants have been received here because while you were critical of what's happening in Inch or in Santry or in Mount Street, uh, it's a different story locally. It is. Well, certainly from my experience and I've gone to a lot of, uh, I've met a lot of, of new, new arrivals in Ireland from all countries and all languages. I know there's a very vibrant uh, multicultural situation in Drogheda and I think in Dundalk as well. I mean, there's something like 30, 40 languages spoken in Drogheda right now. Uh, so that there's a huge change in our society. Um, and it, it is very welcome, but it does create challenges as well. Um, and I think one of the issues that helped loud recently was there's a one and a half million grant, uh, for, for, you know, in relation to community uh, community benefit for looking after new immigrants. And there was over a million and a half granted to the county there last week. That's out of so that out of half a million of that na- national uh, community recognition recognition fund yeah, of yeah. fifty million. Yes. And Michael, as you know, like a place like Thomas Fecken, where there were issues, uh, there's over a quarter of a million for new footpaths and facilities to uh, get people safely from the village out to the sea there, or the sea point. So there's, so there's huge benefit. And I think the difficulty in Clare, part of it was there was, no, there was no communication, which was wrong. Nobody knew the county council didn't know, the politicians didn't know. So there was no way of preparing people you know, for what might come in terms of what the issues might be. Mm. And clearly, we need an immediate fund for meeting community needs. Like, if there's no proper footpaths in the place, well, you know, what can we do about that? What are the facilities? If there are public lighting issues, you know, we, you know, we need a much more proactive uh, way of dealing with those. But, you know, I, I think all in all, the other point I have, Michael, is that I'm unhappy, very unhappy and, and entirely discouraged by the fact that people could go on the bus and count, uh, count, you know, count them as if they were animals, you know, like you know, I, I think that's appalling and it's wrong. And I mean, it's it's you know, like I, I like you and everybody else. I read my history. I read what happened. I you know we're talking about uh, to Jewish people in in, in other countries uh, during the Second World War, the way they were treated, and you know, I just hate to see people. Uh, disrespected because of their nationality or because of you know, they, they, everybody's entitled to be respected. And as I pointed out, Michael, that we're the fourth highest number of of, of refusals for people uh, to come into the European Union in Ireland. So over 9,400 people refused last year uh, for different reasons. So that's a very high number. Um, it's the fourth highest in Europe, which shows that we have, well, you know, it's not an open door. The place isn't being mm. flooded. You know, so I think that's a point that needs to be made as well, you know. Yeah. Um, you were critical uh, as well of uh, the government's response uh, and uh, I think made the point uh, that it could be improved on. Yes, of course it can. It's unacceptable. Like, I mean, in previous times, like the minister has rung all the TDs in the county about issues that arise. Now, I don't know why it didn't happen in Clare. Um but uh, it didn't happen, and that's not good enough, and that's the reality. So it's not a perfect situation. But having said that, I think the government, uh, the state has housed over 60,000 people in the last 14 months. 
you know, and private homes have taken up over 10,000 people. So we've had mm. a huge response in 14 months. And while you have to be critical about issues around communication, yeah, I, I certainly accept that, that the, you know, that, that, that it's a fantastic job has been done and is being done. Yeah. But we have to keep, uh, we have to make sure that communities know in advance that they're consulted and that there's a benefit to the communities as well. I think that's a key issue, yeah. uh, you know, that we have to continue to address. Yeah, and we've well, we've seen terrible scenes uh, with uh, people being burnt out of their homes, which were unfortunately and unacceptably, uh, I think, to the minds of many tents on the streets of Dublin. Uh, a 70-year-old man who uh, challenged uh, some of these fascists in County Clare uh, ended up in hospital after being struck with a torch, I think it was, uh, and uh, you have questions about the policing of, of all uh, of this. You said you recognise the wisdom and the integrity of the views of Angarda Shiakana, but you're not happy and you'd like to see more action. What did you mean by that? Well, what I mean, Michael, if, if somebody if somebody obstructs you on your way to work, I don't think that's acceptable. If somebody places, you know, uh, tractors with hay and stuff outside to prevent you from going in and out or from services going out to where you live, I don't think that's acceptable. Now, I have no issue with protests. I think they're part of democracy. Mm. They're a safety valve and they're important. And our dem- democracy absolutely respects that. And I respect it always. But I don't think, um, you know, I, I don't think you can get away with wearing masks and stopping people from going into do their work in the, in the state in Dublin. I don't think it's right that people can go on the bus and count the number of refugees that are on it. Uh, you know, and I know I accept, you know, I'm not a guard mm. and I'm not on the front line. But I would like to see a follow-up, you know, even if it's subsequently that people, if they're identified, they should be charged with breaking the law. And, you know, because otherwise, you know, these people, you know, if they can take over our streets whenever they want, you know, and and, and do bad mm. things like that, I don't, yeah. I, don't, I don't accept that that's right. I think some people are concerned as well that uh, when locals are allowed to continue with that blockade for a week uh, it sent out a, a message that all you have to do is block roads and you stop immigrants coming in yeah and that's and that's not the case and i mean the other point is that uh, people are entitled to, mm. to apply for international protection that is a legitimate right mm. of any citizen but do you think the guard should have gone in and cleared the road i told them to clear the well, road I, I or arrest them have. i mean yeah. I, I i'm not i'm not yeah. a policeman yeah. but i would I would, I would have thought if I was there, that's what I would certainly have thought. And I mean, you just say, look, guys, stand back. Yeah. That's it. You can protest away. Just stand to the side there and let these cars in and out or let this service van come in to provide food or whatever. Like it, yeah, but but, but, but even at that, there should be safe zones, should there not, uh, outside of uh, the accommodation centres uh, because it's terribly intimidating for the people who are being moved in there to set up home being told you're not welcome here. Absolutely, absolutely. I, I, I couldn't agree more. Uh, no, I, it's just we have to, you know, we, we have to, we have to inform people in advance, and that could have helped. Uh, and when that does happen, it is helpful. And obviously, you have some excellent volunteers and community organisations, and if they're alerted to the issues, they can, you know, they can, they can motivate communities as well and lead them to, you know, to indicate the support that is there. But obviously. There'll always be people who don't want them there. That's that's a fact as well. Mm. And they're entitled to that view, but they're not entitled to 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 to, to you know to block um, access and to 
you know, to intimidate in any way at all. They're not entitled no. to do that. Uh, I might be putting you on the spot here. Apologies if that's uh, the case. Uh, but I, I said I'd ask you, John was in touch with us. Uh, he gave us a, a call a short while ago and asked if uh, the former Bettystown Court Hotel could be used to accommodate people. Uh, have you any insight into the status of the hotel? I haven't, but I, I will certainly find out. But it has been empty for some years now. And I mean, it doesn't make sense to have accommodation that is unused if it's suitable. Mm. So I think if it's suitable, if it's, if it's available for whoever might 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 go in there, I don't have an issue with that. Mm. Again, the important thing is the due process is consult, make people aware, you know, and and meet uh, groups who, who might be able to assess if that is the case. Okay. Have you any thoughts on these uh, flotels? The minister, uh, it looks like we're going to end up with flotels. The minister says officials are, are looking into that prospect. Well, I, I, you know, do you if, I had, if I had young children, I'd be concerned about that in terms of safety, you know, but a lot of these, a lot of people in their categories are single males. Uh, look, I, I, I think it'd be the last place I would like to be part of I was if I was in that situation, mm. you know. Yeah. Uh, but, like, if there's no other alternative now, there is rapid-built housing. There's, I think, 700 houses which will be rapid-built, which will be mm. open shortly. There's a number of sites owned by the Army and by the state that are going to be used for the rapid-build. I think they'll house something like two or 3,000 people. But we still we still have an increasing need, and particularly while the war is on in the yeah. Ukraine. But I would prefer to be living on land you know, than to be living on, sure. a, on a halt, as they say. I wouldn't, yeah, it would I wouldn't say, say it, it at all. It, it would seem to me from a, a distance that a, a lot of these protests are, are, are organised or fuelled, if you like, uh, by fascist illiterate gougers. Uh, is there anything that can be done to stop them using the Irish flag uh, uh, as a, a way of making their argument? Well, I think, you know, everybody's entitled to carry the flag and uh, obviously... Uh, no, no, really, but that's the problem. Should they not be entitled to, to carry the flag as a symbol of hate? No, not at all, not at all. But, but that's what they're doing, isn't it? Can't, if, you were to, if you were to have, say, 500 people all carrying flags as a protest, you know, you'd need 500 cars to... Mm. To catch the ball. I know, but it's getting, uh, it's getting to a stage where I'd be embarrassed to hold an Irish flag. Oh, no, no, I agree. Uh, but, I mean, people know it's like, you know, uh, you know, I, I, I don't disagree with you. Uh, you know, it's not something that I approve of at all. It's horrible. But, like, mm. I don't think you could interfere with that, to be honest, you know, or make it an offence to do that. Mm. It's, it's, it's not an offence to protest. That's legitimate. Uh, what is, what is offence is to prevent people from accessing freely the place of work or where they're living. And obviously to intimidate them in terms of you know uh, getting on buses and stuff like mm. that. I think that's actually the, I think that's absolutely appalling. Mm. You know, and when you read about the pogroms in, in in Europe during the Second World War, it's the same sort of thinking. Yeah. Behind what we're no, doing. it really is. It's uh, 1930s Germany attitude, all right. Uh, uh, and it's uh, the same attitude uh, that is capitalising on some of the problems that we have in the country. And that's why uh, the Nazis uh, rose in popularity because uh, the Germans at the time were feeling oppressed and that they had nothing. And uh, the Jewish were wealthy and seemed to have more than other people. And then it became an us and them. And uh, that was the space that the fascists moved into and exploited. Uh, and now we're seeing a small number of. Uh, mad people who happen to be fascists as well doing exactly the same thing it would seem.
They, they are, Michael. You're absolutely right. Yeah. And that's why, you know, it's it, for those guys to succeed, it, it's for good people to do nothing, you know. And that's yeah. why we have to be organised. We have to be told in advance. We have to communicate with mm. the organisations. We have to make sure that communities benefit from any new people coming into it in terms mm. of facilities and Indeed. public yeah. infrastructure. But I think the vast majority, if you think of it this way, like there's there's probably eighty nine there's, there's probably nearer a hundred thousand people uh, tonight in Ireland who weren't here uh, fourteen months mm, ago mm, mm. and and the vast majority of those are welcome and are yeah. part, you know mm. there's no trouble there's yeah. just a small number of people no oh, and a lot of them are in uh, the lives of a lot of us uh, and they're very welcome thank you indeed uh, for joining us uh, this morning thank that's uh, much appreciated Finnegale TD for loud and East Mead for so doubt. Michael Reed on LMFM. Assaulting a Garda or another emergency worker in the course of their duties is inexcusable and shows flagrant disregard for the rule of law. No person who puts on a uniform and goes to work with the ultimate mission of keeping members of the public safe deserves to be targeted, attacked or obstructed while doing that job, according to the Minister for Justice, Simon Harris, who is to amend laws and change the maximum sentence for assaulting or obstructing a member of Angorda Shiakona and indeed other frontline workers from 7 to 12 years. Brendan O'Connor is President of the GRA, the Garda Representative Association and on the line. Good morning to you Brendan and thank you indeed for joining us. Uh, will this make any difference? Well, the only time will tell if it makes a difference but certainly it is a step in the right direction because we have always called, called for a stiffer deterrent for attacks on our members so what our concern is is that uh, we very rarely see in relation to um, passing of any sentences in relation to any criminal matter that the maximum sentence is very rarely imposed. So whether this will actually manifest itself in longer sentences, only time will tell. But we do welcome the fact that the government are acknowledging that this is a serious problem and are seeking some solutions. It may not be the solution that we would have chosen, but we certainly welcome a, a government policy and, and, and an approach to the, to, the, to the subject. Has there ever been a seven-year sentence for assaulting a Garda? Not that I'm aware of, mm. but again, I stand to be corrected, but I mean, it's, it's not something that we would see, as I say. Now, I think the the, the, the the thinking behind it is that sentences are usually a proportion of the maximum sentence, so we would hope that uh, that would be reflected in the sentences that are passed down by the judiciary. Mm. Uh, can't help but wonder if uh, the minister or the government is uh, communicating with the judiciary or the public. Um well, I suppose it's, 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 that's for, for, for them to answer, not ourselves, but I suppose it's, it, is, it is communicating with the public and it's sending a message that they're, they're, they're aware of the issue. But um, I'm not, I, the, the independence of judiciary has been maintained in any, in, in any democracy, so I, 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 I'm not sure why, how this will land or how it will influence policy and decision-making by judges. Would members of the force feel more assured that it will result in change, that there will be fewer results on Gardaí if uh, there was uh, to be a minimum sentence put in place? Yeah, well, that's what the, that's what the association policy is and that's what our, uh, our long-held uh, objective is to achieve minimum custodial and mandatory custodial sentences because we believe custody and, and a prison sentence is the appropriate uh, punishment and will act as a deterrent against those who, who attack our members. And would you put a, a time frame on that? What should a minimum sentence be? Well, look, that, look, that will depend on the circumstances of the assault. And I mean, we, we rely on the judgment of the judiciary to make that appropriate and the legislature to put proper legislation on the books. So, but certainly, um, 
a substantial custodial sentence for a tax that results in injury, but uh, where, where exactly we wouldn't be drawn on a, on, on a specific time frame. Okay, uh, and with exemptions, uh, I would imagine. Well, there, look, as I say, there's, there's certain circumstances, and I mean, people, who, sometimes there are uh, medical or psychological issues mm. that have a bearing on it, so that's why we, were, we, were, we rely on the wisdom of the judiciary to make appropriate decisions and, and to pass in sentence, but there has to be a threshold, a minimum threshold, that sends a very strong message that taxing our members would not be tolerated. Okay. Uh, we were just speaking uh, with local TD, Fergus O'Dowd, uh, about uh, the policing of uh, some of uh, these far-right protests or whatever uh, name you want to put on uh, the activity of some of uh, these people in recent weeks uh, and how Angarda Siakana has uh, been responding. He says he fully respects uh, the wisdom and integrity of the guards, uh, but he's not happy and he'd like to see more action. Um, what are your thoughts uh, on how it seems uh, people have been acting unlawfully, whether it's blockading roads or stopping people uh, from going to work and delivering food, let's say, in Santry. Okay, well, the, well, the, the law must apply equally to all citizens and there should be no um, hierarchy of its application. So certainly, I suppose, sometimes the public looking on might feel that the guards aren't inter, inter, uh, intervening immediately. But, I mean, as I say, the, the pen is mightier than the sword, so guards will record the details of people who are involved and they may receive a follow-up. So I said the balance always has to be held between maintaining the public order and the application of the law. So the, the, the law can be applied uh, at a later date. So sometimes when people say, oh, the guard did nothing, that's not always the case. But at the end of the day, each, each, each protest needs to be managed locally and operational decisions have to be taken in the public interest. So it's very hard to have a blanket policy in relation to each one. But certainly anyone who's involved in lawbreaking should be brought before the courts and made answerable for, for any offences that they've committed and that we'd be very strong on that. Mm, and the Commissioner has been making the point that he, he doesn't want members of the force falling in, into a trap uh, that uh, would really be playing into the hands of the far right uh, in that they would be able to blame the Gardaí for causing a hostile situation. Yeah, so that's, you know, the, the, the application of law has to be done in a very impartial way. We cannot be allowed ourselves to be manipulated by interest groups who have a, have a vested interest in causing disorder. As I say, the, the law can be applied in a, in a very um, subtle but strong way. So uh, I think the, the avoidance of conflict and, and the divisions of guards getting involved in conflict and competition with people will not help the situation unless, of course, there's a, an immediate uh, someone's human rights or, or legal rights are being uh, impeded on and stopped. But it's a very difficult situation for all involved. But I think the guards traditionally have always found the, 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 the right point and uh, acted proportionately. So it's all about proportion in relation to the, the, the inconvenience or, or, or the law breaking that's been, been, been imposed on people. And uh, ability to control the situation, uh, I imagine that's uh, one of uh, the considerations. If uh, you approach individuals, for example, and tell them uh, that they can't impede people from going about their business uh, and uh, they refuse to comply uh, and before you know it, one thing leads to another uh, and something sparks off, the situation explodes, you're into an almost riot situation. H- have you got the resources to deal with something like that? Well, we wouldn't, look, we wouldn't have the resources on any given day in any location around the country without prior planning. So it takes time to scramble units. So oftentimes if these, these 
protests arise at which short notice, we're only deploying uh, from existing resources. So you wouldn't have the, the, the personnel to go in and intervene at that level. But again, it just depends on the circumstances of each one. But we would say there are not enough Gardaí. I think the teachers mm. themselves acknowledge there are not enough Gardaí. So certainly we would struggle to provide an appropriate response given the foreign guard numbers and, and the numbers available for duty and for response policing across the country. So that's part of the, the wider discussion and, and the wider conversation related to resources. Okay, but if the response is restricted because of lack of resource, it may not be the uh, appropriate response. That's far from ideal, isn't it? And it may play into the thinking of some people who think, well, they're not going to intervene. Let's continue with this. And we may say see an escalation of it. Yeah, so that is the risk that's associated with declining guard numbers and not having sufficient members on duty. And we would say that that will always uh, leave ourselves vulnerable to being the, the response being tested by people who have an agenda or even just the, the normal day-to-day policing requirements and the ability to respond. But certainly, we believe that the, the failure to properly resource in Gareth Chicago does leave us, us vulnerable and as a society that individuals with, with an agenda can actually capitalise and manipulate that weakness. But, you know, our, our calls are, are, are often our calls fall on deaf ears. And um, that's just part of the overall situation in relation to resourcing guard numbers. But in fairness, uh, it seems that we, we can't actually recruit people. So even whenever the government do allocate funding, where we can't actually uh, fill those spaces because it's not a desirable career any worse. That's an even bigger conversation. Mm, it certainly does. Brendan, thank you indeed for joining us this morning. Brendan O'Connor is the president of the GRA. That's the Garda Representative Association. Michael Reed on LMFM. Here's a very interesting message from Mervyn. Thanks for your WhatsApp, Mervyn. Uh, when was it that the war broke out? 24th of February last year, wasn't it? Like uh, 2022. Mervyn says, uh, we're a small company who approached two ministers when uh, the war broke out, offering modular accommodation at homes uh, at a rate uh, of manufacture of around 500 a month delivery within four to six months. Uh, and the ministers refused to meet with us. Uh, I don't believe anything these TDs say in an interview or in the doll. I hope you ask these questions. Uh, they've been offered quick turnaround solutions, so why not engage with all possible avenues? Thank you uh, indeed uh, for the message. Uh, we certainly will uh, follow up on that and uh, we'll try to get more information from you directly, Mervyn. We'll give you a call uh, and uh, maybe you can give us more details uh, on what you were offering. Tom, thanks uh, for your message. Uh, we were asking about the Betty's Town Court Hotel. He said it was sold some years ago and gained planning permission years ago, but the work didn't go ahead due to COVID. And he says uh, there's similar uh, empty buildings. The same thing applies in that sense in Narrow West Street and Drogheda. Most of it was bought up, but people objected to the planning permissions and it was left as it is. And it's the same people who are moaning about how bad it looks now. You could do a show on it, he says. Thank you very much, Tom. Uh, as always, uh, for your message uh, to the programme today. Now, uh, the former Taoiseach Bertie O'Hearn was in front of senators in the Shannon yesterday talking about uh, the Good Friday Agreement. Uh, it was a special address uh, that he, he gave 25 years after being one of the architects of the agreement. Uh, he was uh, very keen to stress uh, that uh, he, he certainly wasn't the only person involved, not just during uh, the negotiations of 19 but in the years before that uh, and his predecessors and others who were involved in uh, bringing peace to this island. But let's hear a little bit of what Bertie O'Hearn had to say yesterday. Tony Blair and I kicked off the process of inclusive talks 
in Belfast in September 1997. Again, it bears repeating that we were not starting from scratch, but rather building on the foundations laid by our immediate predecessors, John Major, John Bruton and Albert Reynolds. A formal talks process had been underway since the summer of 1996, chaired by George Mitchell. But Sinn Féin were not at the table, and of course the IRA ceasefires had broken down in February of 1996. Thankfully, the IRA ceasefire was restored uh, after uh, the change of government and the discussions that we had had with Sinn Féin. To their credit, the loyalist paramilitaries laid um, maintained their ceasefire throughout. So by the autumn of 1997, Tony Blair, Blair and I were able to work with George Mitchell in developing arrangements for the inclusion of Sinn Féin and the loyalist parties of the UDP and the PUP in the talks. That, of course, proved easier said than done. After some difficult con conversations, the DUP and the UKUP withdrew from the talks on the arrival of Sinn Féin. But to his credit, David Trimble and the UUP remained supported by the UDP and the PUP. A word initially about the nature of the talks process itself, Cahirlach. I would sum it up by saying that it was inclusive in terms of the parties around the table and comprehensive in terms of the issues on the table. By that I mean for the first time ever since the conflict had begun in the late 1960s, a negotiating process was taking place that incorporated the majority of the main players, including those connected to the combatants and with all of the key topics requiring addressing at the table. That meant that if it was successful, the process had the best chance possible of being sustainable and enduring. In terms of those around the table, you had two governments and eight parties, UUP, SDLP, Sinn Féin, Alliance Party, UDP, PUP, Women's Coalition and the Labour Coalition. In other words, 10 delegations in all. And when I say delegations, I mean big delegation. You've heard the phrase, it takes a village. Well, the talks process at times looked more like a mid-sized town. Uh, while that made at times the crowded corridors and rooms, in fairness, I do feel, looking back on it, that it also helped heighten the chances of whatever was agreed actually sticking. In truth, the early months of this new phase of the talks through the autumn of 97 and into early 98 were not auspicious. The atmosphere was tense, suspicions were high, progress, if any, was painfully slow. George Mitchell's patience was certainly uh, being tried to the full. That Christmas was particularly bad. Billy Wright, the leader of the LVF, was killed in the Mays prison and tension in Northern Ireland soared again. Delegates returned to the talks after Christmas, even more downbeat than before they left. But Tony Blair and I kept going. We knew that the process was still the best chance for peace and that in January we doubled our efforts. That month we agreed between us what we called the propositions on heads of agreement. Essentially, the bare bones of what an agreement would look like and its key elements. That, that, in fact, became the agenda for the remainder of the talks and the task now, in effect, being to put flesh on those bones. Indeed. And uh, we all know how that uh, resulted in peace on this island and achieving the impossible. Uh, it's a very interesting insight into the recent history of uh, this island uh, that Bertie Ahern gave uh, to the Shannon in a 35-minute speech yesterday and there was a, a lot of discussion afterwards which I think history students will be reading the transcript of for 
many years uh, to come. We might even bring you some more uh, of uh, what uh, the former Taoiseach had to say yesterday on uh, the programme in uh, the coming days. Uh, But uh, as I say, it's an interesting insight into the world of 1998 and indeed uh, before that, uh, for that matter. Bear to your hand there. That's our programme for today. Thanks if uh, you were in touch with us. Uh, If not, maybe we'll hear from you tomorrow. Maggie McGuire researched today. Chris Murray was in the control term. I'm Michael, and God willing, we'll see you for that programme tomorrow at 9am right here on LMFM. Good morning. Bye-bye. The Michael Reed Show podcast. Tune in weekdays from 9 on LMFM. To contact us, email now. Michael at LMFM.ie When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com. Code PROGRAM.